0: Okay, let's, uh, let's start off. We'll just have a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure everyone's in fellowship. Then I will, uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study about studying your word. Help us to, uh, think through issues related to her- uh, hermeneutics and interpretation that we might accurately handle your word. And, Father, we just uh, pray that during this week, as Christmas, that we'll have uh, tremendous opportunities to witness to people, opportunities to share the gospel, and to even make uh, these things clear to family members. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in the section of Bible study methods on interpretation. We've looked at observation, which answers the question... What does the text say? Now we're going to go into... Now we're in interpretation, which answers the question, what, it, excuse me, what does the text mean? Then we will get into the question of what, is, um, what does the text mean to me or how does it apply to me? That's application. Now just a couple of uh, things in terms of uh, uh, meeting. Now as uh, so I understand it, we are meeting... We're not meeting next week. We're not going to meet next Sunday night. Uh, Then we will meet again after the first. So the first is on Wednesday, so the following Sunday is the fifth. So we will meet on the fifth, and we will meet on the twelfth. We'll meet on those two Sundays. And then I will leave to go to Kiev for the remainder of the month and we won't start up again until February the 9th. And we'll be in pretty good shape. We'll, we'll finish up, uh, close to the end of February. Uh, next, next week we don't meet. The next, we'll have two weeks before we go to Israel and we should come pretty close to finishing the interpretation section before we go to Israel, and then we'll come back and do the application section in February. All right, last time we began to look at the history of interpretation. Now, it's important to look at the history of interpretation because it helps us to see uh, what happens theologically when uh, certain uh, interpretive approaches are made. You see the long-term consequences. They may start off uh fairly close to a literal interpretation and an orthodox theology, but then over time you see where certain mistakes inevitably lead. And if they led there in the third century or fourth century BC uh, AD, they'll lead there today. And there's nothing new under the sun. But people keep trying to go back and think that somehow the mistakes of former generations don't really uh, apply to today. So we we can learn from the mistakes of the past. We learn how different approaches have worked or not worked or failed, and we also come to see, uh, in a in a better sense, where certain ideas uh, go, where certain ideas go. But not just in terms of the consequences as I talked about initially, but we see that, that, that as, as different schools of interpretation developed, then we can see how different interpretations of the scripture developed and where those interpretations, uh, originated. So our basic principle though is the one that we're starting with, which is our tradition as a uh, as an independent Bible church, we have a tradition that goes back through, through a couple of different uh, theological traditions. We go back primarily through dispensational, uh, through dispensational heritage. But that dispensational heritage also borrows from, to some degree, from a movement that we'll study a little bit tonight called Pietism that came about uh, after the Reformation And so we, in some areas of Bible churches or within conservative evangelicalism, you sort of, you can pick up a soft mysticism, and that comes from our pietistic tradition. We're also influenced to some degree by a Wesleyan tradition as that impacted uh, victorious life teaching and the Keswick interpretation at the end of the uh, 19th century. We're impacted by, a tradition that derives from Calvinism and the Reformation. And all of these ca- came together at the end of the 19th century uh, as <coughs> uh, modern Protestant liberalism dominated the denominations and conservative Bible believers who believed in literal interpretation Left those denominations and didn't go, there wasn't another denomination to join. They were suspicious of joining with others. And so that's where you get independent Bible churches. Some came out of Presbyterian backgrounds. Some came out of Methodist backgrounds. Some came out of Baptist backgrounds. Now, most of y'all are probably more familiar with, with Southern Baptists, but you have a number of denomin, Baptist denominations that split off of the Northern uh, northern baptist association uh, all the denominations of the united states split north and south prior to the civil war and when they re- reunited after the civil war that's where you got the term united methodist united church of christ united presbyterian the presbyterian church north and south did not reunite until the 1980s uh, the southern baptists are still split the Northern Baptist denomination went liberal in the late uh, 1800s, and spun out a number of conservative denominations in the early part of the 20th century. You have like the regular, the Greater Association of Regular Baptists. So the ba- Regular Baptist Association, very some, seemingly very legalistic, uh, uh, that you usually find those more in the north. Uh, you had the Conservative Baptist Association. You saw those in Phoenix, Mark. Most of the Baptist churches in Phoenix are conservative Baptists. You might not have known that, but they're conservative Baptists because one of the founders, uh, there were three men who led the split from the Northern Presbytery, I mean from the Northern Baptist Church. One of them was a pastor of Southern Baptist Church in Tucson because it was in the southern part of Tucson. It wasn't Southern Baptist. And his name was Dr. Beale. His son-in-law was Bob Theme. Now you connect the dots. So, Pastor Theme's um, father-in-law was one of the three men who founded the Conservative Baptist Association. And he was from Tucson, so that became a major denomination, and it's mostly in the west, Arizona, California, all the way up, uh, west. anything west of the Mississippi, you get a mostly conservative. Uh, that's where the vast majority are, but there's a number uh, back uh, east and north as well. Anyway, one of the things that creates this is that understanding of interpretation. From our tradition, we hold to a, what's called a literal grammatical historical interpretation, which means we look at the words, we understand the history in terms of the time in which the Scripture was written, and we pay attention to the grammar to arrive at the the literal sense of Scripture. And this is a definition. This definition was first uh, coined by uh, David L. Cooper, who was one of Arnold Fruchtenbaum's mentors, and it's a catchy little way of expressing it, which is what I like. When the plain sense of Scripture makes common sense... Seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word at its primary, ordinary, usual literary meaning or literal meaning unless the facts of the immediate context indicate clearly otherwise. It's not a denial of the use of images or figures of speech, but it emphasizes that the, the, the language in the Scripture means what it means in, in everyday, everyday usage. So... We see passages such as Luke twenty four forty four, when the Lord is speaking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and says, "These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which were written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled." So Jesus is interpreting. Wouldn't you like to be a little fly on the donkey on that trip, where Jesus is explaining to these two disciples, going through all the prophecies in the Old Testament that. Predict facets of his of his ministry. Now, one reason I put this up here to begin with is that in the just about where we stopped last time, we got up to the late Middle Ages, just before the uh, Reformation. There was a Jewish rabbi we'll talk about in just a minute who came up with a historical method of interpretation for the Old Testament which denied messianic prophecy and interpreted all of the prophecies we think of as being messianic as as historical these were fulfilled in some event in the history of the old of the old testament yet what jesus is saying is that these were definitely prophetic so prophecy is really where you see the rubber meet the road and a lot of these issues related to interpretation This is the difference between dispensational theology and almost everybody else, is that dispensationalism hangs its hat on the principle of a consistent application of a literal historical grammatical interpretation in every area of theology. Other theological systems are not consistent in their application, and even some within the tradition of dispensationalism haven't always been consistent. That's because of the uh, developing our understanding of, uh, of the principles and consistent application over time. I pointed out last time that the dominant way of interpreting the scripture in the old, in the period from origin in the late second century up to the middle ages was the allegorical method. An allegory is a method where the, as we'll see, the the literal historical meaning is at best irrelevant. At best irrelevant. For many of them, the literal historical meaning is, may not even be true. It's just the spiritual meaning that's assigned to it. So Dwight Pentecost says about the allegorical method that the allegorical method was not born out of the study of Scripture, but rather out of a desire to unite Greek philosophy and the Word of God. And I showed that last time in its origin with Greek philosophy, how it moved from Greece and was introduced into Alexandria in, in northern Egypt, and then and, and with the influence of Greek philosophy and Greek allegory in, in Egypt that influenced the uh, the educated Jewish elite living in Alexandria in the second, third 4th centuries B.C., and so they began to interpret the Old Testament uh, allegorically, and this in turn influences the early church by the time we get to the uh, late 2nd century and 3rd century A.D. And as it, devel- as it develops historically, I pointed out, there was a difference between what became known as the Alexandrian school, which dominated North Africa, and the Antiochian school, which came out of Antioch in Syria, we've seen that. That's uh, located about uh, 150, 200 miles north of Jerusalem. And that school was conservative and had more of a literal, historical, grammatical approach to Scripture. And so the Syrian school, that is, uh, the Antiochian school, fought origin and this was a major theological battle in the early part of the church, uh, fought Origen in particular as the inventor of the allegorical method and maintained the primacy of literal historical interpretation. So you can trace back to the early church that they held to, although it wasn't consistent, they held to a literal grammatical historical interpretation. Uh, Origen's the major figure. I talked some about him last week, but I found that I had several... I'd done some work on origin in another presentation. I thought I would just go through some of these quotes. Joseph Trigg, who's one of the uh, best-known biographers of origin, says that the fundamental criticism of origin beginning during his own lifetime was that he used allegorical interpretation to provide a specious, that means Empty, vacuous, shallow uh, justification for reinterpreting Christian doctrines in terms of Platonic philosophy. So, and this is what happened as a result of the introduction of allegory. Uh, later writers were using allegory to reinterpret, redefine um, earlier works so that it seemed to justify their inter- their school of thought. We find the same thing today in law and constitutional law, where Modern, postmodernists today and modernists seek to go back and almost allegorize the Constitution. They don't care what the original intent of the original authors was. They want to shape it called a living document and redefine its meaning uh, so that it, it fits, it justifies their modern views. As I pointed out a minute ago, the place that the rubber really seems to meet the road on in tr- schools of hermeneutics is, has to do with... Uh, with prophecy and with Israel. And uh, Ronald DeProsy's book on Israel, he points out regarding origin, because origin shifts away from a literal view of Israel and a literal view of the church so that Israel in the Old Testament is the is the earliest form of the church, and when you get into the New Testament, the church is spiritual Israel. And so DeProsy writes that, talking about origin, he motivated this view by appealing to the principle of divine inspiration, and by affirming that often statements made by the biblical writers are not literally true, and that many events presented as historical are inherently impossible. They don't really trust the text in terms of its literal meaning. So so the literal, actual meaning of the text is either irrelevant or it's wrong. It's the spiritual meaning that you have to come up with. Uh, Trigg writes that Origen made allegory the dominant method of biblical interpretation down to the end of the Middle Ages. It took no genius to recognize that allegory was a desperate effort to avoid the plain meaning of the text. Notice that, to avoid the plain meaning of the text. He goes on to say that the trials and tribulations the world must endure before the second coming symbolize the difficulties the soul must overcome before it is worthy of union. the union with the logos. This is how Origin is redefining um, prophecy that the, that that revelation basically is just an allegory for the difficulties the soul must overcome before it is eventually reunited with God. Uh, I'm going to skip over a couple of these. Um, to oh, another great figure is Joachim uh, de Fiore, and he tries to get back to a quasi literal Uh, sort of view in the uh, early church. He is um, a Benedictine monk who was tried to divide history up into three different ages. Creation of Christ was called the age of God the Father, then the second age from Christ to 1260. He lived at 1132, so he was just before where he was thinking Jesus would come back. That was the uh, new age of the New Testament, and then the future age would begin in 1260 as the age of the Holy Spirit. So he comments that they subordinated scholarship to mysticism and to propaganda. And again, the crisis was reflecting biblical studies. The speculation of Joachim of Fiore signified a new wave of mysticism. So they're looking inside for some kind of uh, intuitive meaning, uh, as they come to the Scripture, and this dominates as well in the Middle Ages. Beryl Smalley, in his book, The Study of the Bible in the M- Middle Ages, says that revolution and uncertainty have discouraged biblical scholarship in the past and stimulated more subjective modes of interpretation. So that goes along with allegory. Allegory has no controls on the text, so that you can interpret the events of, to mean one thing and somebody else... Uh, interprets them to mean something else again. And he comments uh, regarding modern times. He says conditions today are giving a rise to a certain sympathy with the allegorists, and we have a spate of studies on medieval spirituality. I put that in there because in the last 30 years we have had Seen a a renaissance in the publication of these middle age allegorists and spiritual spiritualists and spiritualizers, uh people people like Ter- Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, and numerous others that were Roman Catholic that are Roman Catholic saints from the Middle Ages, but they're mystics and they're being promoted by Protestants uh, today. And and if you go down. To Christian bookstores, you will find a lot of these books because they are being uh, being emphasized as being more spiritual than people who are just restricted to the letter of the word. Now, I mentioned earlier this guy, Rabbi Shlomo Yitzaki, otherwise known as by an acronym Rashi. Uh, a lot of the uh, Jewish rabbis were given acronyms like. Uh, Rabbi Moses ben Maimonides was called Rambam. Rabbi Moses ben Nachmanides was called Ramban. Rabbi Shlomo Yitzhak is known as Rashi. And Rashi had a huge influence on the Reformation and Protestant Reformation indirectly. Uh, He was uh, sort of reinvented. Uh, hermeneutics for Jews for for rabbis in the Middle Ages. His um, dates are 1040 to 1105, so he's roughly a thousand years after Jesus. Now, for the first thousand years among um, in the Jewish community, they're really struggling with trying to answer. Uh, questions and issues raised by Christians as they go to Isaiah 53 and Daniel 9, uh, Isaiah uh, 9-6 and Isaiah 7-14, Micah 5-2 passages that give clear messianic prophecies. And if you go back and you study the history of interpretation in the Jewish community, these passages were interpreted to refer to the Messiah. But, (coughs) uh, Rashi comes along and says, no, they're not messianic at all, and he basically invents or generates new ways of interpreting these prophetic texts so that they are historically uh, fulfilled or they're, they're just understood in, in almost a, a hyper-literalism so that it takes away their, their uh, messianic implication. Uh, so one of the ways in which he does this is that he, for example, in Genesis chapter 3, when the serpent comes to Eve, he says the serpent's just a serpent. The serpent isn't Satan. There's nothing that indicates that the serpent is Satan. This influenced John Calvin. John Calvin believed the serpent in Genesis 3 was just a snake. And there is an Old Testament professor, probably more than one, at Dallas Seminary who believes that the serpent is just a snake uh there are uh professors at Dallas Seminary I know of only one on the Old Testament faculty that really believes in as I, as I do in a n- wide number of literal messianic prophecies in the Old Testament uh one of the professors who's now retired that was there for many years Don Glenn said that he w- only believed that that maybe one um one messianic psalm I mean one psalm was mess- was messianic that was it there were no other messianic prophecies in the Old Testament only Psalm one hundred and ten one. that was it um, this this came into uh, evangelical Protestant tradition because at, prior to the Reformation you had a number of, of Roman Catholics who were getting trained in Hebrew from rabbis and after the Reformation a lot of uh, Protestant theologians wanted to learn Hebrew, and so they found a rabbi who would teach him. Well, with that came this view of interpreting the Old Testament. So there's always been a strand or, or a tradition within evangelical Reformed Protestantism that has t- taken this kind of restrictive view on the Messianic uh, messianic prophecies. That's why uh, works like the one I have in, up here, called The Messianic Hope is, is the Hebrew Bible really messianic by Michael Rydelnik is really, really important. In fact, Michael spoke at pre-trib this last time. He's the head of the Jewish studies department. He's just finished editing a messianic commentary on the Old Testament that's going to be published by Moody, Moody Press. And I didn't find out about it until it was too late. I called him up to volunteer to write a, write a comment, write one of the, a commentary on one of the books for him. And they had already gone, to, gone to press. But, he had had lengthy conversations with a colleague in the old testament department at moody and was, and and the guy convinced him that he was was messianic and believed in messianic prophecies in the old testament so michael gave him uh isaiah as his assignment to write and when he got it back when when he uh michael read his commentary Michael was astounded because the guy didn't believe anything in Isaiah was was a messianic prophecy, and he had to rewrite his entire commentary. <laughs> and, but but because they had the guy had started it, he had to leave his name on it, so he just added added his name to it. But it, it just it's it's amazing what goes on out there. So hermeneutics is really important in these issues that what I'm trying to point out for you. is These issues that that you, you may think, oh well, that was seven or eight hundred years ago. They're still out there today. Nothing bad that came into the history of Christianity has ever gone away. I mean, back in the period right after World War, between World War I and up to the 50s, it was believed that postmillennialism was dead. Uh, In fact, uh, Charles Feinberg wrote a book on millennialism and didn't even discuss postmillennialism because in his introduction he said, postmillennialism is dead. Now it's back And, uh, Barrett has a lot of influence today. So this brings us up to the time of the, uh, Protestant, uh, the Protestant Reformation. Now the precursor, uh, to the Protestant Reformation was a man named John Wycliffe, often called the Morning Star of the Protestant Reformation. His dates were 1330 to 1384. 1330 to 1384. And Wycliffe, was the first to emphasize that the people needed to have a copy of the Bible in their own language, in their own hand, that they could read. And so he was very instrumental in, in the history of the interpretation of the English Bible. His followers were called Lollards, L-O-L-L-A-R-D-S. And, of course, in, in anyone who's involved in Bible translation usually puts together a certain series of rules for understanding the Bible. And he had four basic rules. The first is that you need to obtain a reliable text of the scripture. You need to have a reliable text, a, a hopefully Greek or Hebrew text. Second, you had to understand the logic within scripture and stick with the logic of scripture. His third view was to compare scripture with scripture. To understand Scripture, you have to compare Scripture with Scripture, which is known in hermeneutics as the principle of the analogy of faith. You're comparing Scripture with Scripture. And fourth, you have to maintain a humble attitude, uh, seeking uh, the guidance of God the Holy Spirit in your understanding of the text. So first of all, obtain a reliable text. Second, understand the logic of Scripture and third, compare Scripture with Scripture, and fourth, have a humble attitude seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit as you study the Word. He emphasized a grammatical historical interpretation, much as we do literal grammatical historical interpretation, and he said that all things necessary in Scripture are contained in its proper literal and historical senses. So... He died a normal death, but he was later declared a heretic, so they dug up his bones and burned him. Um, But he's the first one in English tradition to emphasize that people needed to have the Bible in their own language so that they could read it. Then we come to the Reformation. At The Protestant Reformation was essentially a hermeneutical reformation. With the shift in hermeneutics, you understand the Bible differently. And one of the, one of the, uh, uh, slogans of the Reformation was the Latin phrase sola scriptura by scripture alone. That you, that a, a Christian can sit down and read the Bible and understand the Bible all by itself, without the aid of the Pope, without the aid of priests, without the aid of church tradition, that the individual believer alone can sit down and read and understand the Bible, which is uh, eventually why we have such an emphasis on uh, Bible study methods type, uh, type courses. One of the first uh, leaders in the Reformation, the one who kicked it all off, was Martin Luther, who was an Augustinian monk, in Germany, in a town called Wittenberg, and he had come to a literal understanding of the teaching of Romans. After lecturing in Romans, he came to have a knowledge of Christ because he saw that Christ is no allegory, and by studying Scripture literally, he came to understand who Christ was. He had a couple of uh, very interesting comments to make about interpretation he said the literal sense of scripture alone is the whole essence of faith and christian theology emphasizing the literal uh, meaning he said when i was a monk i was an expert in allegories i allegorized everything but after lecturing on the epistles of the romans i came to have knowledge of christ for therein i saw that christ is no allegory and i learned to know who christ is About allegories, he said, Allegories are empty speculations and, as it were, the scum of Holy Scripture. He didn't hold back. Tell us what you really believe, Martin. Origen's allegories are not worth so much dirt. (coughs) He said, To allegorize is to juggle the Scripture. He also said, Allegorizing may degenerate into a mere monkey game. Allegories are awkward, absurd, inventive, Obsolete loose rags. And the reason is, as he said, the Bible treated allegorically becomes putty in the hand of the exegete. You can make it say whatever you want it to say. His principle was clear scripture is its own interpreter. This is the true method of interpretation which puts scripture alongside of scripture in a right and proper way. So he emphasized scripture. he too had uh, the 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 um, comparing scripture with scripture is called the analogy of faith and uh, and and he followed that that was talked about by Augustine, but he didn 't really uh, use it uh, consistently if at all. so he said that obscure passages are to be understood in light of clear passages that 's an important principle in Uh, understanding uh, in in, in interpretation is that uh, obscure passages are to be understood in light of clear passages. That's important because sometimes you come to passages that seem like they could mean A, B, C, or D based on a literal interpretation. But you're not sure and it's obscure, so you have to go with more clear references and if there are very clear statements like Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that salvation is by works, and you look at a passage and you think, well, is Jesus talking about getting saved or just living the spiritual life? If the emphasis is on works, you have to interpret it. It must be the spiritual life, even if you're unclear, because otherwise it would violate clear statements of Scripture like Ephesians 2, 8, 9 or Titus 3, 5. Along with this, he, I want to talk a minute about allegories. Um, Luther rejected uh, uh, allegorical interpretation, which is really what revolutionized Christianity and, and led to the radical shift that took place uh, during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, he he d- uh, developed systems to understand the Bible's uh, figures of speech, and, uh, and anthropomorphisms, and he recognized that if you push these things too far, then it becomes, uh, very, uh, uh, very subjective in terms of determining the meaning of scripture, and that God wants us to understand scripture, so it can't be fluid. Uh, in, in understanding allegory and talking about it, we have to recognize that the Bible does indeed talk about allegory. The Apostle Paul specifically uses an allegory in Galatians chapter 4, verses 24 through 26, which is what I put up on the screen. There Paul writes, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. But these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai which gives birth to bondage which is Hagar, for this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabian corresponds to Jerusalem which now is and is in bondage with her children, but this uh, Jerusalem above is free which is the mother the mother of us all. Now when we look at verse 24, this word symbolic is the word for allegory. So Paul is using allegory here, but there is a difference in how Paul is using the term here and how it is used when when, uh, it's developed into the principle of allegorical uh, interpretation. In Paul's allegory in Galatians 4, like other Bible writers who use allegory, clearly indicate that he is talking allegorically it's not, it's it's identified this is an allegory furthermore we have built this little chart here comparing allegorical interpretation with paul's allegory in allegorical interpretation the historical meaning is insignificant if it is even true it's insignificant even if it's if it and it may not even be true for example, in the story about Sarah and Hagar, it's irrelevant whether or not Sarah and Hagar actually existed. It's irrelevant if Abraham existed. It's irrelevant if any of those things happened. The historical literal meaning is inconsequential. What is important is simply, uh, the spiritual meaning. In the way Paul uses allegory, the historical meaning is significant and true. And so the, but, just as you have like the imagery of the lamb at Passover, that is literal and true, but it also has, in addition to the literal meaning, it can be used in Scripture as having a symbolic meaning. So in Scripture, the literal historical meaning is never minimized. And in, uh, allegorical interpretation, the deeper meaning is the true meaning, and in biblical allegory, parallels and similarities are drawn to make a point. So he's not providing an additional meaning. It's using something from the Old Testament as an analogy or parallel to a doctrinal point in the New Testament. Third point is in allegory, the deeper meaning is the exposition of the record. That's what they, what a preacher in allegory will do is preach the allegory. The literal is irrelevant. and Paul's allegory, Paul does not say the, that his allegory is the exposition of Genesis 16. He's not saying that that what he's describing in Genesis 5 is the meaning of the text. He's taking the text and he's applying it by way of an analogy to the principle that he is teaching. Under allegorical interpretation, everything in the Old Testament can be allegorized so that everything becomes fluid, whereas with Paul's type of allegory and biblical approach to allegory, uh, Paul the, the writers clearly state that they're basically taking an Old Testament event or another event and drawing an analogy or picture with it. Now let's take, go ahead and take a break here. We've gone through Cal, uh, uh, Luther, but before we go forward into Calvin, let's take about a five-minute break, and then we'll come back and go through the rest of the uh, Reformation.